If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the second chapter. I acknowledge that more often than not, you would not think to go to the book of Galatians for a sermon on gospel mercy in particular, but I think you'll see clearly why today that we are, in fact, doing that. Uh, and Galatians chapter 2, we're in a series for those who haven't been here, uh, we're in a series uh, called Gospel Witness. I mean, we're, we're exploring the very reason for our existence, as the slide says, the very reason for our existence. In other words, God created believers to be in the community called the church, and the church, these particular local churches, have a reason for their existence, and, and, and those things are laid out for us in Scripture. We've captured it in five missional priorities, uh, their gospel culture, gospel formation, those are the two we've already talked about. Right in the middle of it is gospel mercy, and then gospel outreach and gospel unity. And so we will be exploring those three today, starting with gospel mercy that, that remain. But that's our way of expressing what we believe the, the scriptures tell us are essential to why we exist as a church. And uh, we want those things to help us stay focused on the prize, as it were. Stay focused on the goal. And uh, so today we arrive at Gospel Mercy. And if you would, read with me in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9. James Cephas, that's Aramaic for Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we desire that you would speak again what you are speaking to the church in Galatia, to your churches that uh, received these letters from that day until this. We ask that you would speak clearly to us in particular about this necessity that we remember the poor. And indeed, like Paul and Barnabas and others, that we would be eager to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gospel mercy is a missional priority for us as a church, which is to say that it is essential to our existence. It's one of the very purposes of our existence. Now, you might ask, why is that? Well, I I will make the case today because Christ made it essential to the existence of His church and to the purpose of their existence. In other words, it's a non-negotiable for gospel ministry. It's a non-negotiable for gospel ministry. Now, let's start by defining mercy. What is mercy? When I say gospel mercy, I mean, obviously, gospel is modifying it. We're we're informed by the gospel about what mercy is. We're, we're wanting to communicate the mercy of the gospel in it, but, but it's mercy. And mercy comes from a Latin word that, uh, if I can pronounce this somewhat correctly, is uh, misericordia. Uh, and according to its literal sense, it means to have one's heart, the core, misericordia, one's heart with the poor, the misery. And you see, even in, in, in that sort of language that misery, the miserable, the, the poor, uh, Les Miserables. You see it in, in, in the title of, of that now musical uh, novel uh, originally. 
But, but mis- mercy is to have a heart for the poor. To have a heart for the poor. Um, the poor uh, are those in misery. And we, we capture the sense of mercy. In, in other words, we have in English like compassion with passion for, the, for them, sympathy to, to feel along with. But in, in both of those words, this passion and sympathy, you, you find suffering in the roots there in, in passion, uh, passion and, and pathos. There's suffering. Mercy is, in some sense, suffering on behalf of the poor. Uh, now, theologically, mercy is sometimes kept at arm's length. Um, Partly, that's influenced, I think, by the Greek concept of God, which says that God cannot suffer, because for God to suffer would somehow indicate some kind of change. Um, mercy, compassion, pity, they all involve some kind of suffering. So in our systematic theologies, mercy is just kind of a, you know, it's down the list, a long list of things that you might include that are, they're part of what God has, but we don't focus too heavily on it. Uh, And again, I think that's influenced by the Greek concept of God. But the God revealed in Jesus Christ is the God who suffered with and for us. There's there's just no way around that. That's the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not suffer only because he was human. Though he did suffer as a man, fully human. I'm, I'm not saying otherwise. But it's important to recognize that he suffered because he was God. And that's what God incarnate would do if he's a man. He would suffer for the miserable. Okay? That's the nature, the very nature of God. We'll explore the missional priority of gospel mercy under these headings today. Uh, Gospel priority for the poor. Gospel mercy pictured. Gospel mercy practiced. Gospel priority for the poor. Gospel mercy pictured. And gospel mercy practiced. So under that first heading, gospel priority of the poor. Caring for the poor has always been an essential of gospel witness. In our Galatians text, Paul mentions uh, the necessity of remembering the poor. And and it seems, in the the broader context of Galatians, almost as an aside, but don't let that fool you for a second. In context, Paul tells the Galatian churches that circumcision, abstaining from certain meats, and special days were not essential to the life of the church. Those aren't essential for the life of the believer. Though they're prescribed in the law. I mean, they're they're in the law. They're God-given directives. But Paul and apparently the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John. Now, that's not the same James that was an apostle in this case that's mentioned. It's James, the brother of the Lord. Because most likely by this point, the first James had, had... Past or the one we think of in, when we say Peter, James, and John. But, but James was certainly, this, the brother of the Lord, was a uh, leader in the Jerusalem church in a significant way. And, and they, too, were okay with setting these things aside for the sake of Christ. They're no longer necessary for participation in Christ's kingdom. However, Paul tells us one thing that is not a negotiable item. In Christ's kingdom, remembering the poor. He and Barnabas agreed with Peter, James, and John that, and literally it reads, only we must be remembering the poor. 
that they asked us is supplied in English to make it proper English. I mean, in other words, it, it, you have to somehow put a verb somewhere in there that fixes that uh, part of the sentence. So um, that's added, but, but it's just only we must be remembering the poor. There's a, it's, it's emphasized there. And it's emphasized in part when you contrast what we must do with all the things you no longer have to do. Even though it's one line in Galatians, it's like a neon light just glaring at us. This is what we have to... Yeah, no, that's not important. No, that's not important. No, that's not, This one! Oh, yeah, you got to keep that one. That's important. You must be remembering the poor. Remember does not mean to simply call to mind. Like, oh, I remembered them. No, that's not what is implied here in remember. Research shows that people who profess loudly support for causes, maybe even on their social media, various other ways, they profess loudly their, their support for issues, uh, causes related to poverty, that they are actually less likely to sacrifice their time or money to do anything about uh, the, the actual issue at hand. Isn't that bizarre? We, just, we, we want to make sure people think of us that way, but we're less likely if we do that to... To do it. And I don't know what to make of that, but it is what research shows. Remember is not some sort of internal activity. It involves external activity as well. When God remembered his people in the Old Testament, it always resulted in his acting on their behalf. So remembering the poor re- includes acting on their behalf. To rem- if, if I haven't acted on the, their behalf, I haven't actually remembered them. If I profess loudly that I care about the poor, but I do nothing, then I don't actually care about the poor. Okay? Why is this an essential for gospel witness? Well, and, 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 and there's more of this sermon on the cutting room floor than there is left, okay? I, I could go a long ways on this one, but we, we, we got only so much time. Well, actually, you've got only so much time. I can be here as long as you want, but matter to me, but anyway, I'm a realist, okay? Why is it an essential for gospel witness? Well, and, and, and this is not a minor point, so just follow me for a moment here, real closely. We are not on our own mission. The mission that we are engaged in is not some sort of personal mission, personal mission for us as a church, or uh, the, you know, my, my specific mission. No. It is God who has a mission. And we are invited to participate in it. The mission does not change. The mission remains the same. And God has always had a mission to care for the needy, to show compassion to the needy. And, and that's throughout. I had a whole section that I cut. It's on the cutting room floor of God's care for the poor throughout the Old Testament. And even that was abbreviated but had to be, had to be eliminated. But it's there. Paul's comment to the Galatians is of central importance to the church. Remembering the poor is a non-negotiable of gospel mission. Paul himself demonstrates this priority of the poor in gospel ministry. and Both in the book of Acts and several of the epistles, Paul talks about the fact that he's been on this multi-year journey of collecting offering for the church in Jerusalem. I mean, it's it's significant. In fact, it has been argued that the primary purpose of the entire book of Romans, not, I'm not saying I agree with this, but there's at least something to it, okay? Even if it's not the case, it's, there's something to it, that the entire purpose of the book of Romans is to collect an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. 
It's not without some merit, okay? And, and, and so here's the point. It's a big deal for Paul in his life, in his ministry. It's got to be a big deal for Christ's church. I hesitate to use this because I respect the person I'm about to mention highly, and I think if we had a chance to sit down and talk, they'd probably agree with me. But it illustrates a point that I think we have to make. I love Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever, and the ministry that they're doing. But nowhere in there is it mentioned that we need to show mercy to the poor. And if we don't do that, we are not a healthy church. I'd say those other things are important too, okay? So don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is, this isn't essential, according to Paul, according to Peter, James, John. It's, it's a priority. Um, Jesus placed a priority on the poor. In, in Matthew's gospel, we see, it, see this in at least three ways. Jesus placing a priority on the poor. F- Jesus' first preaching in Matthew's gospel highlights mercy to the needy. I'm just going to be able to give you a few highlights from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's my favorite portion of Scripture. Again, a whole sermon could have been preached right here. But the Sermon on the Mount begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, which properly understood at least uh, included the literally poor as well. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn. They mourn what? They mourn loss. Blessed are the meek, the lowly. Blessed are those who uh, long for justice or righteousness to be done on their behalf. Uh, Each of these speaks of aspects of earthly poverty. And then in chapter 5 later, he he says, Give to the one who asks of you, or who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Or in chapter 6, we read a longer section of this earlier. I read that then because I had to cut so much of it out here. But do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so, so the Sermon on the Mount, his first preaching, highlights mercy to the needy. Secondly, we see in Matthew's Gospel, twice Jesus chides the Pharisees, for their merciless application of the law with these words, go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It, it, it could be argued that that's the theme of Matthew, at least at some, in some part, that's the theme. Uh, finally, in Matthew 25, in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and goats. You might be familiar with the parable of the sheep and goats. Get the, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, you know, Jesus at the end of time. Which is, by the way, the only description we have. Yes, it's a parable, so don't read too much into it. But the only description we have of the judgment seat of Christ is there. It's the only one we have. Okay? It should be important to us, to be sure. And, and there, you... you you know, get some kind of sense that you're going to need a reference letter from the poor to get into heaven, get into the kingdom. Now, now, albeit it's a reference letter, you didn't even know it was sent on ahead of you, and you weren't even aware of it, okay? But it seems, in some sense, one could say that. And Christ mysteriously casts himself in union with the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, imprisoned, and sick. Mother Teresa referred to seeing Jesus, quote, in the distressing disguise of the poor, in the distressing disguise of the poor. A great uh, book, or series of books now, because there's more to it, um, to read to your children as they grow up, Tales of the Kingdom. And, and one of the things I love there is all the disguises that the king takes uh, in the poor 
throughout the book that, that, that people can't recognize, and they're scratching their head. Well, surely that's not the king, and they just, they just move on. But it's, it's helpful. David Maines, the Tales of the Kingdom. Um, <clears throat> in the end, one's welcome into the kingdom is surprising. Those who helped the poor were not doing it to gain entrance, hence their surprise. Because of the abundant mercy they had received, they weren't keeping track of the mercy they were giving to others. But they were giving mercy to others. In Luke's gospel, a little bit different way that this is highlighted, Jesus starts his ministry applying the words of Isaiah to himself, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, he declares that he is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, which is then developed as proclaiming freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free, and announcing the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the Sabbath year when debts were forgiven. It was indeed good news for the poor. It was great news for the poor. But although it was Great news for the poor, it was never practiced because it was bad news for the rich and powerful to whom those debts were owed. And since the rich and powerful control what is and isn't practiced most of the time in our lives, they determined we're not going to do that. But it was good news. So Jesus comes along and basically is saying, I'm the one anointed to be king. And under my kingship, it's year of jubilee. It's Sabbath year, and perpetually so. Okay. Now, in Luke's gospel, if you follow the sequence, that's Luke chapter 4. You get to Luke chapter 6, where now Jesus is going to give what's called in, in Luke the Sermon on the Plain, but it's essentially the same content as the Sermon on the Mount, abbreviated. And, and its placement is interesting, because first Jesus says, I'm coming to proclaim goodness to the poor, the, the, the year, the Sabbath year, the year where your debts are forgiven. And then there's the Sermon on the Plain, wherein he tells us to forgive everybody their debts. Why? He's telling us how to live in perpetual jubilee, perpetual year of Sabbath. We are to live out this Sabbath because it's a foretaste of the kingdom. And he says, if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And I find that one interesting. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Because if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, there Matthew records it as, Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But I suspect that if you'd wanted to tattle on Luke to Matthew, and you went to Matthew and said, Hey, Matthew, Luke, Luke changed it. He said, Be merciful even as your Heavenly Father is merciful instead of perfect. I imagine Matthew's response would be, Yeah, and? <laughs> because that's what he meant. If you look at the context, that's what he meant. It's right there. The book of Acts. So we get out of the Gospels. That's Jesus making it a priority in his own ministry. But then we see in the book of Acts, just to go further into the New Testament, it places care for the poor as a central priority. 
And, and you see this in the first six chapters explicitly. In chapter 4, verse 32 through 34, it's a summary statement of chapters 2 through 4. And it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So so that's a snapshot. But then we get to Acts 5, just in case we think everything's perfect. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which reveals that corruption can creep into one's heart even in acts of generous benevolence, okay? So, so beware, this isn't a, a panacea, some sort of cure-all to every problem. And so, so we have that. And then Acts chapter 6 shows that ministry to the needy can actually cause significant conflict in the church. Well, uh, wait a minute, I thought if we just did what he called us to do, it would be easy. No, in fact, it might make it harder. A lot harder. But what did they do? Did they say, okay, I'll tell you what, guys, this is causing too much problem. This, this is distracting the leaders. We don't have time to prepare sermons. I mean, we've got to stop this. No. They restructured the entire way they did church in terms of its organizational structure and how they functioned. They restructured it, adding what we now know as the office of the deacon, adding people that could care for the poor as their primary focus. That meaning it was so essential that they couldn't go on without fixing that. Yes, the word must have priority, but so must deed have priority. Word and deed were set up in the two offices of the church. The kingdom of God has always prioritized word and deed. James, remember James, the brother of the Lord, who was among those that we read about in Galatians? Well, he's got a letter in our New Testament called James, appropriately so. And actually, by the way, his name is Jacob, just for the record. He's called James because that's the English translation of Jacob. And they wanted to make a distinction between uh, the New Testament Jacob and the Old Testament Jacob. So all the Jameses in the New Testament, guess what? They're Jacob. That's who they are. <laughs> that's their name. And so here's, here's Jacob, the brother of Jesus. And, and he reflects this missional priority for the poor, gospel mercy, in James 1.27. You've probably heard this verse. It's one of the better known verses in the Bible. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, or you could even read that and maybe better read that. Worship that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is true worship. True religion, if you will. That's a strong statement. It reminds me of what Isaiah called a true fast in Isaiah 58, which involved giving our bread to the poor. And Isaiah's point there is that the the purpose of fasting isn't to go hungry. The purpose of fasting is to to neglect yourself only in the sense that you're doing it to, to better another. To better another. I don't have time for a whole sermon on fasting. I'm not even sure if I'm qualified to give it, so I'll just leave it at that. But orphans and widows that James brings up, they're two parts of the repeated trifecta throughout the Old Testament of those whom God calls his people to show mercy to, widows, orphans, and strangers. These were the people most vulnerable to exploitation at that time, and they're the people most vulnerable to exploitation today. 
by and large. <clears throat> Strangers have little or no legal or enforced protections in most societies. Orphans have no protector, so they're taken advantage of. Widows are likewise taken advantage of with little or no power to stop it. You could sum up the three for whom we are repeatedly called to show mercy as the poor. Now, that doesn't mean that every widow, every orphan, and every stranger is poor. They are a summary statement for the poor because most of the people in that circumstance of life found themselves vulnerable and therefore exploited and poor. But not every widow was poor. We can find biblical examples where you had widows that weren't poor. Okay? But that doesn't disprove the point. It's just a reality of how things work. Neither are they the only poor. And in saying you need to care for widows, orphans, and, and strangers, God's not saying, oh, don't have to worry about the other poor if they don't fit in that category nice and neat. No, it's, it's a way of describing this whole circle. And he's not going through every nitty-gritty detail of what's there and who's not actually poor. He's, th- this is the, the large descriptor, how they would have understood the poor. <clears throat> so in addition to Paul... Jesus prioritized ministry to the poor. Uh, And in the book of Acts, we see the early church prioritized ministry to the poor. And James, a brother of Jesus, prioritized ministry to the poor. And it leads to our second heading. By the way, the first point is my longest, so you can rest assured we're not doing as long on each of the next two. That was a whole sermon in itself. But now, gospel mercy pictured. The church is called to be a picture of Christ's reign. To borrow borrow language from Cavan Rowe, the church is to bear witness to the inbreaking reign of God that Jesus announces and embodies in all that we do and are. We we become a picture of and testament to God's reign. That is how we are to live our lives, a picture of and testament to God's reign. The five missional priorities that we are focusing on in this series help us stay focused on doing that. Okay, They help us stay focused on doing that. Jesus embodied the kingdom. Where he was, where he acted, where he did the Father's will, the kingdom was present. Likewise, God's intent is that the church, where the church is, where we act, where we do the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven, there the kingdom is present. One of the greatest ways we accomplish this is through acts of mercy. Jesus announced and embodied the kingdom. Mercy was present to heal the sick, feed the poor, and forgive sins. Those acts of mercy, they weren't merely symbols of the kingdom. They were actual manifestations of the kingdom. When the church announces God's reign in Christ, the gospel... When we announce God's reign in Christ, when we announce the gospel, okay, and when we, we embody it through acts of mercy, we are not merely symbolizing the kingdom, we are actually manifesting the kingdom among us. And let me, this may help. I, when I was, I don't know, it's either Christmas of 76 or 77, I'm a little mixed up on exactly where, where it fell, one of those two. Um, I had that previous summer had had uh, bought uh, had mowing lawns, saved my money, and bought a, a, a new set of drums. Now I'd had this junky old set that 
All it did was allow me to just practice the movements, but it was so bad that you would never have want to have heard it in your life. It was just one of those, you know, right up from what you buy your three-year-old, the next step up, it's probably what you buy your 10-year-old. It's not a real set of, of, of drums and, and so forth. But I had, had saved and bought the drums, Tama. They're, they're one of the best sets you could buy. They were the best at the time and, and probably still as good as most any that are out there. But, uh, and, and they're in my office over there. They actually, I have them, not put away in the cases, but there they are. But this was in 76 or 77, but I didn't have enough money to buy the cymbals. And cymbals are expensive. I mean, at the time, this was a lot of money, but, you know, around 350 or so dollars to get the cymbals, and I was well, be, you know, beyond my limit to get the drums. And so for Christmas, my parents were going to get me the cymbals. However, they had not come in yet. They had ordered them, but they're coming from overseas, whatever, they, you know, it was a couple of months before they would arrive. And, and um, so they, they ordered the cymbals, and then they took one of my junky old cymbals off that set that I had in the basement that was horrible, and they wrapped it up, and when I opened it, it had a, a message across the top that said, a symbol of things to come. <laughs> but um ching And hence was born my life of humor. Uh, <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's where it all came from, right there. <clears throat> now, that symbol that was in there merely symbolized what was coming. It wasn't a part of what was coming. But imagine if one of these symbols had come in. And by the way, let's see, there's, there's the, oh, they, they've changed them. You, you changed them, didn't you, Brian? But my hi-hats, and up until this week, my hi-hat and my ride were here from 1976 or 77. And, and, and being used, but the, 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 if they had gotten one symbol in, but the others had not arrived, and they had wrapped the one that was actually one of the symbols and said this is a symbol of things to come, it would have not only been a symbol of what was coming, it would have been a part and parcel of what was coming. Okay? When the church, in the name of Christ, does acts of mercy and brings the gospel, word or deed, word and deed, when we are doing that in His name, that is, yes, symbolic of the kingdom to come, but it isn't only symbolic of the kingdom to come, like my actual junky old symbols wrapped up. It was actually a part and parcel. When we do that, it's the kingdom of God is manifest in that moment, and we are experiencing it now. Amen. Demonstrating gospel mercy is not merely an ends, an, an end, a means to an end. It's not merely a means to an end. As if the mercy were like that junky symbol uh, that I got. Rather. It's demonstrating gospel mercy, while not the whole thing, is part and parcel of the coming kingdom now. Um, the early church pictured the reign of God through mercy. And you see this in, of course, the book of Acts, but going beyond that, Tertullian in the second century insisted that God had a, quote, particular respect for the lowly and that caring for the poor was the distinctive sign of believers. And even the pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, surely an enemy of the church, but during his brief reign in the 4th century, vehemently opposed Christians. He stripped them of their rights and privileges, and yet he acknowledged concerning Christians, quote, they feed not only their poor, but ours. Would that be said of the church today? Calvin, so we're going to fast forward. We're out of the early church, but to the, the reformers. 
And so we're going back to the beginning of the Protestant church. Calvin repeatedly asserted that regardless of faith or merit, all human beings are bound together in, quote, the common society of the human race. And that the image of God alone makes one, quote, worthy of giving yourself and all your possessions. He points out that lending to those from whom we can expect no repayment, no repayment is a test of our charity or of our love. Some strong words. Of course, Calvin was all for giving 50% of the church's income to the poor. That's radical. We're not there. I'd like to get there. Paul gives Timothy instructions concerning gospel mercy. Paul wrote Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, saying, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, um, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, the the Greek word translated command, it might best be translated command. (laughs) Pastors today are taught to motivate the rich to be generous, but command? I mean, seriously? I mean... I'm pretty sure, though I don't know, I'm pretty sure we could do a survey of seminaries and find that nobody's teaching their students that when you get in your church, start commanding the rich to be generous and give to the poor. Now, to be fair, he didn't say tell them to give this person, that person, and the other person. He he didn't give them the specific that they were to do, but he did tell him to command them to give generously. That's strong. It's not an optional extra to the Christian life. Then, then notice the language taken right from Matthew six nineteen that we read earlier. He says, in this way they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming uh, age. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay. Calvin said that humans need to be deprived of the illusion. Deprived of the illusion that giving to the poor is a foolish waste of resources. You see, if we are laying up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, it is actually the wisest use of resources and indeed not foolish. Amen? And then finally, my third point, and this is really a conclusion, it's application to the rest of the sermon, okay? So my third point, the whole thing, is really application. Uh, Gospel mercy practiced. What does this mean for Gulf Coast Community Church? What does it mean? Mary Jo Copeland, founder of Sharing and Caring Hands, a ministry to the poor in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, was referred to by the city officials as an urban saint. Still going strong at 80, she explains why she does what she does. Quote, When someone is drowning, you do more than throw a life preserver. You get into the water. Okay? The church must get into the water. Amen? She spent her life getting into the water. And it's amazing the work that was done just because of that. Eugene Cho, in his book, Overrated, 
Are we more, more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? <laughs> he says, quote, Ideas, dreams, and visions don't change the world. Rather, it's people, like you and me, who faithfully, prayerfully, and tenaciously live out these ideas, dreams, and visions who change the world. How do we contextualize mercy to the poor in our, what I'm going to call an urban light community? We're, we're not fully urban, but we're a small city. We're not suburban, that's evident. I mean, certainly not in my house, what we experienced the other night, last night, yeah. It, it's, it, it's definitely leaning urban, but it, it's urban light. Okay, so this, this is where we are. This is our context. This is our time and space in 2023. How do we in that place contextualize mercy to the poor. Well, Gulf Coast should certainly be a place where those hanging on by the threads to survive feel a sense of safety and care in times of need. It should be a place where single parents trying to make ends meet can find relief and sustenance and find a family that helps to make them whole. But the fact is that the marginalized are innately inclined to feel condemned or unwelcome. By the church. Whether true or not, it's kind of beside the point. They feel that way. So we have to work extra hard to embrace them and help them to feel welcome. So many of us need to be advocates to not only welcome them, but to actively pursue them and make sure they know they are welcome. In our lives, we will encounter them. Don't just wait for them to show up here to do that. Well, the first focus of mercy ministry in the church is to those who are inside the community. In other words, that's a requirement. The church today has become segregated by socioeconomic classes. In other words, most people go to to churches with people in the same socioeconomic group, with some variation, usually because it's in their neighborhood. And we don't live in that neighborhood, and they don't live in this neighborhood, so to speak. I mean, and so we, we find ourselves... Now, being urban light. We have more mixture maybe than you typically would have if you were suburban where it's completely separated out. So I'm grateful for that. But we're going to have to uh, think, be more nuanced in thinking about it, more nuanced than thinking, okay, we need a, we need a soup kitchen. Well, that, that might not be the real need that needs to be met. There are a lot of soup kitchens and and we need to think, well, what, we've taken care of the poor in our church, but then we have to ask, are there poor in other churches that don't have the resources to help them that are believers? We've got to begin to think beyond just this, these walls, not only for who has needs, but also for how to solve those needs. Not everything that's needed to solve the needs is going to be found in here. So we've got to lock arms, and this gets over into two messages from now, gospel unity and why that's so important. Because we can't do what we're called to do without locking arms with other believers in other churches. And and you see this in Paul's model in collecting the offering for the Jerusalem saints. There there were a bunch of poor in Jerusalem, and Paul didn't say, you know, those saints down there got to take care of them. Well, they're in a famine. They're all experiencing it, right? So he collects from other churches and brings it there because a good proportion of the poor were not in their church. Now, of course, they had plenty of poor, too, that they were taking care of, to be sure more so than we see in our day. So, we've got to strive to break down barriers, seek ways to engage needy believers, um, uh, even when we think of inside of our walls. We've got to go beyond our walls to be true to that. Um, If we look at our missional priorities, 
we, we recognize that gospel mercy is not our strong suit. We've got it. Grateful for what we've got. And we, we, we have a heart for it. But when push comes to shove, we aren't as good at it, maybe, as some of the other things that we, we focus on. So we need to strengthen gospel mercy. Uh, we've got to think of how do, we, how do we look at poverty in a holistic approach? How do we create care that meets people before they're on the street, not just waiting until they're there, that strengthens their dignity, that cares about helping them flourish in life? And, and, and just so you know, it's not going to succeed if you wait for the elders to figure it out. We aren't going to figure it out. It's going to take you. Creatively banding together to blaze a trail. The, the church in... Okay, here I'm going to speak of the church and how it's structured, how it functions as an organization, not so much... I know the church is the people, Okay. But the reality is when people come together in a collective, it creates an organization. And so there's something to that. A living organization, yes. And so the church in its structure, in its organization, um, is, is a bit like Airbnb or Uber or eBay. Okay? You see, Airbnb doesn't own real estate. They're a platform for people who have real estate And what they do is they create a structure wherein those people can rent out their space and they create connections, an entire network. Because, honestly, nobody would go to Airbnb if only one person had a room. I mean, like, you know, who's going to go there? You have to know that they have lots of people that have lots of spaces all over the country before you even begin to think about it. Actually, all over the world now. Okay? Same with Uber. I mean, like, Uber doesn't, I mean, they might have cars, but I'm, the point of what, when you call an Uber, you're not getting somebody with a car from Uber. You're getting them in their car, whatever they happen to be driving. They, they don't buy cars. They create a structure for people who have a car that want to use them to taxi people around. And, and so they create a structure, and they also create a network that makes it viable that when you get somewhere, you can call Uber or you know, use your app to get to Uber and get a ride. If they didn't have the network, it would be useless as well and you know we can do the same airbnb or, or i'm sorry ebay isn't about owning merch they don't have merchandise they just have people they create a platform for people to sell the stuff they have and so on and so forth well the church is much like that we we come together but the church isn't going to go solve all the problems you know i wrote my check and okay they're gonna no it's going to take you it's going to take all of us using our ideas and getting engaged and doing things. And, and, and yet we've got this network of people to draw on and, and, and help with and some resources that can get behind it. And, and so there's, there's more to it. We're going, to, we're going to have to collaborate with other ministries and churches, and we talked about that briefly. Here's a great example of what we can do, and, and, and this is also an example of collaboration. Uh, three years ago, we did a series uh, on race and reconciliation, and, and, and the, the main thrust of that was to say, hey, the, 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 the church in this city is very divided between black and white, and we've got to find ways to worship together because the scriptures have said that we are one, and, and find ways to do that. And so Bruce and Jeanette Reynolds, spurred on by that series, decided they were going to get involved in delivering meals 
uh, through Meals on Wheels, and in particular into a neighborhood very unlike their own on the south side of St. Petersburg. And they've been doing it ever since. And now it's become one of their greatest joys, and they have dear friends that they've embraced and that they're caring for Okay, in that situation and setting. But notice they, we didn't come up with a Meals on Wheels program. It already existed. They decided, hey, this is a way we can apply God's Word and go and, and do this. Okay, We need ideas like that. It, what we need as a church... And I'm, 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 I'm wrapping up, so that's what it It's a bit like the relationship between science and engineering, okay? Um, <clears throat> Richard Hamming, one of the great computer scientists of the previous century, he said this, quote, In science, if you're doing it, you shouldn't know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. Because science is supposed to be exploration. Engineering, you shouldn't be doing it unless you know what you are doing. Well, nothing is pure. Science involves a great deal of engineering, and engineering involves a great deal of new material. So it's a great blend. But, but here's his point. I mean, you don't want scientists building the Skyway Bridge. Like, I'm not getting on that bridge if scientists built it. Not interested. Now, sure, a lot of science has gone into it, but science has already been proven. We now know that. We don't need science for that. We need engineers for that. Right? And, and so we need... We need now, if, if you're trying to figure out how to... Uh, cure COVID, well, you probably need scientists for that, not engineers, see? So, now, of course, everything works in a blend, and I get that, but for the sake of illustration, allow me to use his point and stretch it just a little bit. The reality is in the church that my job here, largely, the elder's job here, largely, not entirely, nothing's pure, is to be engineers, to make us keep true and on the path, to to, uh, enunciate what is real and true, we need scientists. Now, of course, we should be a little bit that way, too. I get that. But it's all of us figuring out how do we get this to the world in our context, in our time, in our space. Now, we do that, too, as members. We're, elders are members, too, so I get that. But there's a purpose for the church in what we do when we gather and worship. But we need more than that purpose if we're going to succeed in our mission. We need a bunch of scientists figuring out new ways to do it and exploring what can be done in our particular place, in our particular time, to reach this community specifically. Okay. Some of the ways we're currently engaged in mercy as a church. Well, both in financial support and volunteers, we heavily support Next Step Life Center, which works to provide whole pro-life care for mothers, fathers, children, the whole family, ever how whole it is. And we Uh, We've been actively engaged doing that and encourage more of that. New Life Solutions, which provides care for moms and babies in unplanned pregnancies. We've supported various ministries that feed the poor. We have a benevolence team in the church which serves individuals in the church that come to them either directly or through their community groups. Knowing that God often draws people to himself by meeting their physical needs first, we look for those in proximity to the church. or In other words, when members of our church have relationship with people in need, and they're bearing witness to them in other ways with the gospel, and they bring that need to us saying, is there any way we can get some help? We're far more inclined to help there where there's a relational connection to somebody in the church than where we just don't know. There's no relationship. This is just throwing you know, something on the wall and hoping it sticks. So we're more inclined to do that. Um, when you give here, 
whatever you give, just to our offering, um, about 15.5% of that goes, 2.5% is specifically benevolence, 13% is mission. But we started analyzing this. We've got to kind of reconfigure our numbers at some point. But the reality is a lot of what we call mission is orphans and, you know, our, our children's homes in other lands and, and Next Step Life Center here in the city. I mean, it's going to care for the poor. So I haven't figured it all out yet, but certainly 6 or 8% anyway at a low end is, is going to care for the poor and the other for gospel ministry in other places, okay? So there's, there's uh, a variety of ways that that is done. Um, and, and, you know, all the people like Bruce and Jeanette that are, whether it's Meals on Wheels or 16 other things that are being done that are engaging because that's in your heart. Uh, those are things that we're doing. Of course, our community groups, so many needs are met within the community group before anyone ever knows about it outside of that. But to make an impact in our community, to make an impact in this neighborhood, we need creative minds working on this. We need you with your gifts, thinking about it, having mercy, a heart for the poor. Let's pray. Father, As we prayed earlier, we need eyes to see as you see. Guilt is not going to get us there. Some sort of merit system will never get it accomplished. It is your mercy toward us that we need to see so clearly that it gives us those same eyes as we look at others. Lord, may generosity abound among us even more and more. And may our heart be for the poor. In Jesus' name. Amen.